This is Trang Nguyen, Head of EM Sovereign Credit Strategy at JPMorgan Chase, and you're listening to At Any Rate, our global research podcast, where we take a look at the stories behind some of the biggest trends, themes, and industries and markets today. I'm joined here today by my colleagues in strategic research, Joyce Chang, Chair of Global Research, Amy Ho and Stella Zhu, along with Fiona Gregg, co-head of the JPMorgan Chase Institute. And we're here to discuss our recently published annual report on the progress and challenges to achieving gender balance and diversity in the post-pandemic world. We examine the impact of the pandemic on female labor force participation, female representation on corporate, startup, and Fed boards, as well as the C-suite, uh, we also look at progress in closing the gender pay gap and the development of policy initiatives adopted in DM versus EM countries to close the gender pay gap. So Joyce, let me start with you. In the report, you wrote that female participation in a labor market declined at historic rates at the onset of the pandemic. However, you mentioned that despite it recovering, there has been scarring that will likely outlast the pandemic. Can you help us understand how the pandemic has disproportionately impacted women and what were the driving forces? Well, thanks so much, Trang, for that question, and it's great to be with you. Well, let me start by saying that there's been a huge divergence between developed market countries and the emerging markets countries' outcomes for female labor force participation. But even within the developed markets, um, there are major differences. And what is really noteworthy is that the U.S. has lagged other developed markets with respect to the recovery, even though we have the unemployment rate coming down to a 50-year low. Um, so taking a look at the historic drop that we had in the labor force participation rate in March of 2020, we've seen that the recovery has closed this gap really completely in the um, developed markets. Um, female job growth has actually been stronger. You, we've returned to the pre-crisis levels for labor force participation. But taking a look at the U.S., the gender um, gap still persists. Female participation in the U.S. labor force is inching back after going to a 33-year low, but it's still 1.2 percentage points below the levels that we were at in February 20 before the pandemic. Women were harder hit due to a couple of different factors, the constant of their filtration of their jobs in the services industry, retail, tourism, hospitality, all that required face-to-face -face interactions. But really, the story is in emerging markets. The shock to emerging markets, labor markets from the pandemic is really leaving permanent scarring as women exited the labor force in record numbers. Through 2023, the International Labor Organization shows that employment rates are going to lag pre-crisis levels for women in EM for years to come. And women in EM specifically were hardest hit because they are overrepresented in informal labor markets. They lack remote work options, and they were also impacted by longer lasting school closures um, than what occurred in developed countries. Women in emerging markets, if we look across the board at all gender metrics, are lagging developed countries by an even wider margin post-pandemic. That's so interesting, Joyce. Could you actually expand on how the experience for EM women differed with DM women? And what about school closures? Uh, in your report, you mentioned that the pandemic placed a spotlight on the disproportionate responsibility that women bear for childcare at all income levels. So how did school closures play a role for women in EM? 
So these are all great questions, Trang. So women working in the services sector in emerging markets were far less able to work remotely compared to women in developed markets where that was an option. And we think the extent of labor informality, the vulnerability has also contributed to weakness in female labor markets in emerging markets, particularly if we look at the low and the lower middle income countries. Women are really overrepresented in informal sectors. It's you know 70% of the jobs. Um, and so young women are exposed to lower pay, less robust social protections, and the crisis is much more likely to be out of scope of official government support um, you know, assistance and measures. The ability to telework is really positively associated with GDP per capita, benefiting the women in developed markets, with women in emerging markets much less likely to have telework opportunities. But school closures were also major issues, um, and that's very significant in explaining the underperformance of women in EM. It's important to note that women in emerging markets have a much higher domestic care burden than both men um, in emerging markets and women in developed markets. So taking a look at the IMF report, they report that school closures lasted roughly twice as long in developing countries compared to advanced countries. So this has had um, a disproportionate um, you know, impact on women in emerging markets who bear this domestic um, burden. And it's likely going to be a factor in the recovery in terms of preventing women from coming back to work more rapidly. That's very interesting, Joyce. Thank you. So let me turn to Fiona, co-head of the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute. Fiona, the Institute released a research piece in June of 2021 studying racial gaps um, in financial outcomes during the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you go over some of the key findings that your team made? Yeah, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here also. Um, yeah, so during the pandemic, you know, one of the one of the things we started looking at as in some ways sort of a, a sufficient statistic of, of how families were doing was simply their cash balances, right? We know so much changed in the pandemic, um, huge job losses, lots of pandemic related fiscal supports, um, big spending changes. And so, you know, checking account balances are where all of that kind of washes out, right? The big changes in income, the big changes in spending. And so, um, you know, we looked at this by income level, by race and ethnicity and by gender. And one of the things we noticed was that, you know, black and Latinx families start with much lower balances to begin with. And so each of those rounds of stimulus, rounds ones, two and three, represented a larger proportional increase um, for black and Latinx families compared to white families. Um, you know, so too with female-led households, they start with lower median balances. And so each of those um, rounds of stimulus and the expanded unemployment insurance, et cetera, um, really propelled a larger percent increase um, for female-led households um, than, than others. Your team also looked at balance changes by gender. What did you find there? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things is, obviously the fiscal supports boosted balances, but you know, it's really important to think of also how quickly families depleted those balances. And so we found that women depleted their balance gains more quickly than men, um, primarily due to their lower starting balances. Women saw greater year-over-year -year percent growth in balances than men in the weeks after the first and second round stimulus. Um, but tracking those balance trajectories through the end of 2020, we found that male-led households maintained a greater proportion of their post-stimulus balance gains than their female counterparts. 
And this was true within each race group and across income quartiles. So for example, Black and Latinx female-led households experienced the fastest depletion of their cash buffers. They maintained just 42 and 30% of their post-stimulus gains, respectively, um, compared to 56% for white and male-led households. Uh, you know, I'll note another group that that spent down their stimulus gains more quickly were single parents, right? So um, it's gender, race, it's it's parent status um, that really played a role here. But you know, I think the fact that Black and Latinx female-led households depleted their cash balances faster than white households may indicate that you know, families of color, parents, women, female-led families, they face circumstances that made it more difficult to maintain a cash buffer that could be, you know, uh, ongoing expenses, um, loss of income that wasn't necessarily always fully replaced by those stimulus or other fiscal supports. Thank you so much, Fiona. Amy, let me turn to you. You wrote about gender responsive policies. What are gender responsive policies and what is the current state of play? And how many still remain in effect and have any been institutionalized? Thank you so much, Trey. I'm very excited to be here today. So let me begin with what are gender responsive policies? These are policies that consider and address the unique needs of females in different situations, roles, needs, and interests. And they are essential in order to mitigate risks of long-term scarring from the pandemic's disproportionate impact on women, as you mentioned earlier, in addition to ensuring that women are not left behind in the economic recovery. And while governments have taken steps to implement measures to support the socioeconomic well-being of women, the re response remains insufficient and uneven across regions and dimensions. We focused on three key gender-sensitive policy dimensions, which included unpaid care work, women's economic security, and violence against women. It has been found that developed market countries issued more paid leave measures while emerging market countries focused on cash transfer programs, likely due to the lack of social infrastructure in place in emerging markets. In the first year of the pandemic, an average of nearly 300 gender-sensitive measures were adopted per month, but then dropped to an average of less than 30 per month in 2021. By July of last year, 41% of gender-sensitive measures were already discontinued, and so far, no gender-sensitive measures have been introduced this year. Wow, so 41% of gender-sensitive measures have already been discontinued. That's a lot, right? So what is the economic impact of rolling back these measures? Yeah, so unfortunately, in a McKinsey study, they estimate that in a gender-regressive scenario in which no action is taken to incorporate a gender-responsive recovery, 33 million fewer women would find employment in 2030, which translates to an impact to global GDP growth in 2030 of at least $1 trillion. Um, in, for example, that's 1% of global GDP levels at the end of 2020. However, if action is taken now, 230 million new jobs for women could be created globally and 13 trillion or 15% of 2020 global GDP levels instead could be added to global GDP in 2030. Thank you so much, Amy. Now let me turn to Stella on the topic of boardroom diversity and gender parity at the top. Uh, this has become, this has come to the forefront over the past few years, as studies have shown that more diverse boards can lead to improved business performance. We've seen a considerable global push and the question of how to improve gender parity at the top has become something of a movement. Estella, what role have government mandates played in improving these metrics for women serving on boards? And how does that contrast with women on startup boards and Fed boards? 
Thanks, Trang. Uh, great to be here. Um, so over the past year, we've seen a moderate improvement in female board representation at the corporate level. Women now hold a historic 25% of the Russell 3000 company board seats. This is a 10% increase over a five-year period. Regionally, European countries continue to show the highest percentage of companies with at least 30% of women directors at 79% and almost no all-male boards. However, more work is needed in um, emerging markets with women holding only 14% of all board seats across MSCI EM lagging DM at 26%. So policy matters here and government mandates have been effective at increasing gender diversity on corporate boards across both DM and EM. And although there are no um, national mandates on board diversity currently in the U.S., individual states have taken action. So California issued a gender mandate requiring publicly held companies to have at least one woman on their board of directors by the end of 2019. The number of women on the boards rose from 49% to 76% in one year among California-based public companies. And a number of, of EM governments have also um, imposed mandates, and that includes India, Malaysia, South Korea, and the UAE, which require companies to have at least one woman on the board of um, state-owned enterprises. And further proof that policy has made a difference here is the near doubling of the pace to 22% of female representation for new startup board appointments after the introduction of California Bill SB 826. Despite the progress here, the venture ecosystem still lags the public markets overall. And we also looked at the changing composition of the Fed boards, where seven years ago, white men made up the majority of directors on the boards of all but one of the 12 U.S. Fed Reserve Banks. This year, white men are, for the first time, the minority on every board. The Fed has been working to attract more women and minorities to serve on the boards to better reflect the nation as a whole. Ultimately, though, while data indicate overall progress towards more gender-balanced boards um, across the spectrum, current baseline projections indicate that it will take until 2027 to reach 30% and 2042 to achieve 50% representation in the corporate boardroom. So we're still many years away from achieving parity at the top, um, going at the pace that we're going now. So what about the C-suite? How much progress has been achieved for the representation of women in the C-suite during the pandemic? Meaningful gains for women in the C-suite um, and at the CEO level has been harder to achieve. Women CEOs only capture 8.2% of Fortune 500 and 5.6% across the Russell 3000. Women of color hold only 1% of CEO positions across the Fortune 1000. Last year, the number of women CEOs on the Fortune 500 list reached an all-time record at a 41 headcount, with uh, six more women joining the ranks as CEOs. At the same time, the number of women CEOs in the Russell 3000, however, fell from 167 to 162. At a sector level, constituents of the MSCI ACWI index show that healthcare and financial services had the highest percentage of female CEOs at 7%, while energy and industrials have the lowest at three and 
So for the C-suite, building a strong pipeline of diverse executive talent is key to boosting the numbers at the top, helping women move from mid-level um, into opportunity to serve as a CEO or into roles with significant P&L responsibility. Thank you so much, Stella. We're also seeing some modest improvements to the unadjusted gender pay gap, notably for the US. So after stagnating over much of the last decade, that gap between female and male median earnings has declined from 17.7% in 2020 to about 16.9% in 2021, and this is a new low. We know, of course, that the pandemic has had a significant impact on the labor market, as well as the distribution of earnings. So it may be too early to know for sure whether the improvement in the pay gap will persist. In Europe, preliminary reporting shows that the average unadjusted gender pay gap declined modestly across the 27 EU member states in 2019 to 14.1%. In the UK, pay transparency regulations were passed in 2017, and this required organizations to disclose the pay gap data annually. And in the first few years of reporting, the average pay gap across industries based on the average hourly pay was fairly consistent at around 14%. But initial results for the current year show that metric has declined to about 12.4%. Pay transparency legislation is also becoming more widespread in the US. So in New York City, employers are now required to disclose salary ranges for job postings. And other states have implemented similar laws as well. And this includes California, Maryland, Ohio, Washington, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Colorado. And there's also pending legislation in the states of Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. However, there are still limitations to the way some of these laws are implemented. So for example, in some states, the disclosure of salary, of salary ranges is not actually automatic, it's, uh, but rather they are made available upon request. Pay transparency is seen as a crucial step in closing the gender pay gap, but there's still a lot more that can be done on the policy front in the US. And so as we have discussed, women have clearly risen to the challenges of the pandemic, managing enormous responsibilities at home as well as in, at, at their jobs. And this often comes um, unrecognizable. JP Morgan Chase continues to work on programs and policies that advance gender balance um, and the challenges facing women as the pandemic enters an endemic phase. So we look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you to all, all of our listeners and to our guests today, Joyce, Fiona, Amy, and Stella for joining. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on March 25th, 2022.